Paul has really taken us into the operational detail there, hasn't he, which is very interesting. I think it would be useful for me to take a step back. I want to ask some bigger questions. So I'd like to do three things in my ten minutes. Firstly, I'd like to remind us uh, what the so-called humanitarian system looks like. In other words, how many staff, how much it costs, and how it works. Then I'd like to look at five key lessons that have been learned from the international response to the tsunami. And I think these lessons will, will also echo in many other international emergency responses over the past 10 years. Uh, and then I'll look to, at the response that has um, uh, uh, just been outlined um, here um, to, the earth, to the Haiti earthquake in the light of these lessons. And I, I hope to finish with a few reflections on whether the international humanitarian response system is adequate or not. So what, what, is, what is the uh, international humanitarian response system? Well, I think it's made up of two distinct but related groups, uh, uh, the formal sector and the informal sector. And the formal sector is made up of the aid providers and the implementers of aid. And the providers include donor governments, foundations, and individual givers. The implementers are made up of the main agencies from the Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement, the international NGOs like Oxfam, UN agencies and the International Organization for Migration and national and regional civil society. Now the informal sector is central to many international responses but is often not very visible. And here uh, this sector includes governments, military and businesses. And it also comprises of informal systems of global remittances from various diasporas around the world including, for example, the Islamic zakat system. And most importantly, the recipients or affected populations often play a, a key role in life-saving response. We know in the tsunami, for example, that really over 90% of the people that were saved directly after the uh, response were saved by the survivors and local communities. And I'm sure that most of the immediate life-saving efforts after the Haiti earthquake also took place um, from the survivors. So let's have a look at uh, who works in the system. Well, at the moment, according to the very latest figures, we have about 211,000 staff worldwide who work in humanitarian aid. And 49,500 of those work in the Red Cross Red Crescent. 48,500 work in the international NGOs. Um, have I got that right? No, I beg your pardon. 48,500 Red Cross and 113,000 international NGOs. So that's how many staff are in the, in the global system. Um, and how much does all of this cost? Well, uh, the figures that you get are, are, are varied uh, depending on different sources. According to donors, in 2008, global humanitarian spending $18 billion. According to the United Nations financial tracking system, it was 6.6. And according to provider expenditure, uh, in our latest LMAP report, which is this, I can't resist plugging it, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's, it's about 7 billion. So I think it's important uh, to stand back for a moment just to gain a sense of perspective about this system and as to the capacity of the system itself. Now, just to put it in perspective, humanitarian spend is less than the combined salaries and bonuses 
of one single tier investment bank which were recently reported uh, a few weeks ago. And the global humanitarian staff were about the same in number as staff uh, of the UK confectionery company Cadbury. Uh, well, in fact, it's probably not UK anymore. <laughs> 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 45,000 people there, combined with um, staff of the global consumer goods firm Unilever. So, given the size of the task that, that is expected from the humanitarian response system, um, we're somewhat under-resourced, to say the least. Um, so, the current system can never meet hum humanitarian need, and not only that, it's not systematic in the way that it works, but it does have some kind of adaptive capacity and tends to respond to disasters in three ways, depending on the, the context and the type of emergency. And so sometimes the formal system leads the way, as in, for example, in Darfur, where you have a, a situation where the government, for whatever reason, is unable to, to deal with the, the situation. In other situations, you get a mixed response, where you have part formal and part informal. Um, for example, in the Pakistan earthquake, uh, where the military played a very, very key role. Um, and in some cases, state institutions take the primary role, as in the, the Bam earthquake, where, for example, where the uh, Iranian Red Crescent was very strong and local civil society was very strong. And in the China floods, we all know in China they have the ability to mobilise tens of thousands of people very, very quickly. So, <coughs> depending on the context, the, the, the system works in one of those ways. Um, uh, it's a combination of formal and informal system. Now, if we take a, a look after the tsunami, and what, what we, we've heard um, you speak about um, very briefly, uh, is that, um, well, in the tsunami, there were just too many agencies for the job. There were too many assessments and unnecessary duplication. I'm not sure we're seeing that in Haiti. Maybe we can get on to that. No, no. The, the second uh, one is lack of alignment and cognizance of local structures. The, the tsunami evaluation really talks a great deal about the arrogance, actually, of the international NGO community. Um, this is reported very explicitly in, in the text synthesis report, which is this one, which you can get on the ALNAP website. Um, it also talks about very excessive competition between operational agencies. After the tsunami, there seemed to be an inability on the part of many agencies to say no to funds. And there was a lot of flag flying and logo flashing going on. Uh, the fourth lesson was uh, around the very difficult transition between immediate relief and recovery phase. And I think this is really, really, really important. And there's very complex challenges after the tsunami relating to restoring livelihoods, transitional set shelter, and land rights issues. And we've heard from Paul already that there are some issues about not knowing when to go, who, who's going back when, and so on and so forth. And the fifth one is a perpetuation of disaster myths. Um, and there's two that the, the tsunami evaluation highlighted particularly. One was about dead bodies spreading disease. Uh, and the second one was that the affected population were too traumatised or to be able to help, both of which are quite untrue. So, in the light of uh, these five lessons, let's take a look at coordination. I mean, obviously, um, Haiti is a really extreme example. 
is a very extreme context due to the profound damage to infrastructure. The, the, the state institutions were devastated, port was out of action, roads and telecommunication down, a very small airport. And this is very different to Aceh in the tsunami where damage was on the coastal areas only, so it was actually easier to get into Aceh than it's even than port of prince um, and we have a, a, a response in Haiti which includes a mix of different actors from both the formal and informal system, including a, a very heavy US military uh, presence. And my understanding was that there, are, there is a challenge around coordination. Um, and partly that's because um, there doesn't seem to be one actor that has legitimate authority to coordinate others. Now, I know that the, the clusters are working well, but I don't know how the clusters are relating to the military and to the state and to many, uh, you said there was a, a thousand NGOs there. I don't know how, how all of that's working. So I still think there is a coordination issue. But one of the things that we have noticed in, in the response to the Haiti emergency is that there is more use of information technology now. Um, web portals are up, and so... Um, uh, ALNAP has a learning portal, UN OCHA has a portal up, and so there, there's an opportunity for people to coordinate their plans and activities online in a way that we haven't seen in the past, and that's something I've noticed which is, is, is quite different in this, in this emergency. Um, lack of alignment with local structures. Um, I mean, Paul has mentioned uh, um, that in Haiti there is a local presence. You mentioned that WASH was working with a local authority, Arup. Um, so there seems to be reasonable alignment in Haiti, more, more so than the tsunami, if I'm right about that. Um, the next one is agency competition. Now, you know, where, where there's high media attention in many different agencies, there's always competition for funds and for profile. And, you know, this happens all the time. It happens in the development sector, too, where NSPC, Bernardo's, for example, are are in competition, but the 24-hour rolling news spotlight really highlights this, uh, and uh, in the tsunami in Haiti, you really get an intensified picture of agency competition, which you know, is there, but perhaps isn't quite as much as, uh, <coughs> as one would imagine if you look at the TV all the time. Um, after the tsunami, we saw um, an inability of many agencies to say no to funds, even though perhaps they haven't worked out whether they could spend those funds efficiently or not. And we saw good practice from Médecins Sans Frontières, for example, who gave back, gave back their funds. Um, the funds, not all the funds, the funds they couldn't use. I'm not sure where the Disasters Emergency Committee are with their, their response now, but I, I assume that it's much less than for the tsunami. Um, now, there's a very important point here around. Um, uh, I've lost the slide. Think, I've lost the slide somewhere. Um, and, and actually, it's a really important slide, so I'll just talk to it. It's not there. Um, it's about the alignment of relief and recovery. Um, uh, it's terribly important after the tsunami. We learned that it's in incredibly important to, to to start thinking about recovery as soon as agencies land. And I know that uh, agencies now are talking about five to ten year plans in Haiti. I know that the Disasters Emergency Committee is extending their reporting uh, period. Um, alignment of relief and recovery also is um, dependent to some extent around this whole shelter issue. And 
transitional shelter was highlighted as a, as a really complex challenge in the tsunami. And it was a, a very clear lesson about the need to avoid transitional shelter becoming permanent. And we saw um, the, the slides there with the, the tented camps that are expanding there. And I think that's an issue in Haiti now that Paul will know about. We also saw in the tsunami real issues around land ownership, which I don't know if they're latent in the tsunami, but they caused huge problems. Um, sorry, I don't know if they're latent in Haiti, but they caused huge problems in the tsunami. And the last one, um, perpetuation of disaster myths. Um, I mean, one of, one of the myths is that dead bodies transmit disease. Um, and we know from earthquakes in the past about how important it is to let the survivors bury the dead. Um, going through that rite of passage is, is very, very important for a recovery process. Uh, it's very important for, for grieving. And I noticed that there, there, there was a lot of mass graves at the beginning of this uh, emergency. And I, I, I wasn't sure Paul would be able to tell me whether to some extent there was a concern that dead bodies carry disease. Um, in fact, live people carry disease much more, more than dead people. So, I mean, that's a myth maybe Paul can, uh, can shine some light on. And the other myth around is that survivors are too traumatised to respond and passively wait for assistance. And that certainly wasn't the case after the tsunami, and it certainly wasn't the case here. So there's a couple of myths. And... Now, my, my conclusions really are um, that you know, the humanitarian response system is not acting in a radically different way in Haiti. Operational agencies moved in quickly, but they got stuck due to logistical problems and a lack of clarity around coordination. Now, some people now are arguing that there's a lack of effective leadership in the system, lack of effective leadership right at the centre in the UN and around the clusters. But given the way that the system works, it's, it's hard to see how, how this response in Haiti could have been much more effective than it was. And so I'll leave you with one final question, really, and it's, is, is the international response system that we have at the moment good enough? Uh, what would a more adaptive and effective response system look like? At the moment, we have a very effective sticking plaster. But if you did want a, a global fire engine, if you like, uh, a, a systematic way of responding internationally to international emergencies, it would be, need to be um, much more resourced, uh, a, a better, better resource than it is at the moment. So I'll leave it there. Thank you, John.